may not know from that text, but uh, this is a very crucial point in the history of Israel. Israel is probably at its most precarious place as the covenant people of God. And we've been seeing throughout the chapters that this major theme has been going on repeatedly. That it doesn't matter what they see, the outward circumstances aren't to be considered. They are to trust in the covenant promises that God alone has made. So Israel's strength or their weakness is really irrelevant. What matters is that they put their hope in God who will be the one who will answer their hope. He will be the one that will do it. And throughout the times uh, in Israel's history, we've seen them wavering back and forth at this time, bending in their faithfulness. Sometimes good, oftentimes they push it to the brink. But chapter 8, we saw them push it possibly too far, pushing it to a breaking point. It was there that they requested a king. And And make no mistake, it wasn't just, hey, we'd like a change in government. It was, we want to be a different type of people. We no longer want to be a people defined by the covenant. We no longer want to be a people that put our hope and trust that God will do it. We want to be normal. We want to be like every other nation out there. They all have kings. They all put their trust in a military. They all want to make sure that they have diplomacy with other countries. They want to make sure that they're strong and that the things that they trust in can actually be felt and seen. And that was a deep, spiritual rejection of God. A rejection of their identity. They don't want to be Israel anymore. They want to be normal. And so now we turn to chapter 9, and we're left with that question. How is God going to respond? Is he going to respond with anger? Is there going to be bitterness or spite? Or is he simply going to be cold and withdraw himself? These are questions that we can wrestle with as well. Knowing what I've done in my past, considering the mistakes that I've made, did I go too far? Have I crossed a line? Or have I just, you know, selfishly gone my own way so far that God is just going to be done with me? We turn to this passage, and it, it seems almost utterly secular. Where is God in this? But I think if we draw closer, deeper than the surface, we actually see that God is the main character here. He is the one at work. He hasn't given up. He's the main character of this story and of yours. So let's turn closer to this passage and see what he is saying to us. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that you will give us insight and wisdom in your word. Help us to see um, what you're doing in this part in the story. And Lord, we do thank you 
that there's the rest of the story and the context that helps us. May it be true words to us that restore us and replenish us. For we need your grace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this story uh, could not be more boring. (laughs) I almost feel bad about having you sit through the entire thing well read, but I I felt that... that, uh, Going through the whole thing, almost you get the sense of, okay, is there anything special here? Saul's father loses some donkeys, and he sends his good son, Saul. Go look for the donkeys. How are you going to squeeze a sermon out of this? Saul, like a good son, goes off to look for the donkeys. And from town to town, he can't find these donkeys. He's about to give up. Dad's going to be more worried about me than he is about this, these animals. And then his servant says, hey, wait, we've stumbled onto the town of a prophet. Why don't we go ask him if he can help us find these animals? Saul objects. Hey, we don't have any money. That was a good plan, but you know, let's, let's just go home and pack it in. It would be offensive if we just went up to him without anything to give him. And then the, the servant, you know, reaches into his pockets. And, hey, wait a second. Look, I've got something. Now let's go, let's go give this to him and, and, uh, and see. Well, they happen upon a, a well with some women. Hey, can you show us where this prophet is? And, and it just so happens that they know him and they know exactly where he's going to be. So they point him in the right direction. And the very first person that they meet as they enter this town is the guy that they're looking for. And then uh, he tells them that the donkeys have been found. Much rejoicing. You guys don't seem as excited about it as Saul was probably. And then strangely, there's this huge party. And Saul's the, the guest of honor at this party. Strange story. That's certainly how, how Paul, I mean, how Saul would have expected it. How he would have understood uh, the telling of a story like this. That it was really nothing special. He probably went to search for donkeys many times in his life. It was a bit strange, but largely boring. Aside from Samuel popping up like Gandalf out of nowhere and telling him where these donkeys were, it, it just didn't seem to resonate much. What are we to draw from such a seemingly secular story? We might be tempted to say that God is absent. Here, Israel has rejected God, and God, in response, says, okay, have it your way. I'm out of here. Chapter 9 could be a picture of a life without God. Or we might conclude that God's response in chapter 9 is to give them this bungling guy, Saul. You want a king, all right? I'll give you one. Here, take Saul. That is seemingly the issue that many of the commentators wrestle with. Is Saul a good guy or a bad guy? Now, certainly we know his future. We know things don't work out, and there's many flaws there. But, but is this sp- a story specifically showing 
his failings, or does it show that he started off really good? Which is it? Those who argue that this is the first sign that Saul will be a bad king start to scour the narrative for clues. Start to see the flaws early on. He's from Benjamin. In fact, he's from the town of Gibeah. And if you were reading the book right before Samuel, the book of Judges, you saw that that ended in a horrific, gruesome attack done by the people of Gibeah. It was so offensive that the rest of Israel actually went to war with Benjamin. They started a civil war over this act because the people of Gibeah and the people of Benjamin, not doing anything about it, were so, was so offensive. In fact, they should have wiped everybody out of that tribe, and yet they let some men uh, survive. Could it be that this is the fruit, the wicked fruit of that, that Benjamin produces Saul, a bad king? Furthermore, Kings are supposed to be good shepherds, right? And here's Saul. He's bungling the, the search for the donkeys. He can't find them. Is this foreshadowing? Or perhaps um, they see that he's not the one that initiates seeking for the prophet, but it, in fact it was his servant who does it. His servant has the, the funds. And then when he responds to the prophet, some scenes of rebuke that he's giving to uh, Samuel in verse 21. Now there are others who will say, no, no, no. Actually what we see here is Saul acting honorably. And they go back to search for clues here. Look, he's showing respect and concern. He says that he cares about his father and what his father says and even says his father's going to be concerned about us, even including the servant in it. And then he, he's the one that initiates and says, hey, we should give the, the prophet, the man of God, a gift. We shouldn't go empty-handed. And then others see that that response is not one of rejection or rebuke or arrogance, but of humility. Why me? Why would you even consider honoring me? I'm just a lowly person from Benjamin. Well, I think the whole thing is a red herring. The whole thing draws us away We need to step back and we need to think about the larger picture of what's going on here. What's happening in Israel. And one thing that we can say for sure is that Saul, throughout this whole story, is completely passive. Every character in this story initiates. Every every character in this story initiates the action and Saul is just left responding. His servant the young girls, the donkeys. But rather than seeing this as an indictment of Saul, I'm convinced that it's telling us something more important about God. You see, God is the one orchestrating all of these events. God has his hand on all of it. And frequently when the Bible wants to talk about and refer to God's providential activity, it will be in these sort of happenstance uh, encounters that seem like it's just a winding narrative that circumstance just brings about these fluke things. But no, God is in control. So that's the first thing I want us to observe about this passage is that God did not abdicate his throne 
on, as king of Israel, even though Israel asked for another king. He did not let them take control. He remained in control. He did not allow his covenant people to be the masters of their own fate. And Saul can't see this. For Saul, the donkeys are so important. They are the vital thing that's going on here. And from his perspective, that's what the story is all about. It's all about finding these animals. And he's blind to what God is up to. That's the way it is with providence so much in our lives. We are consumed by the thing of the day. The thing on our plate in front of us that we think is the most important thing. Oftentimes we can't imagine how God could be concerned with anything else in the universe than the thing on our plate. We are unaware of his activity. Unaware so much so that we often discount his activity. We look at the the details of our lives and we see them in utterly secular terms. Unless he pops up and gets involved, unless he shows himself in some miraculous way, we are under the assumption, generally, that things happen by chance or circumstance. This story pushes us, reminds us that God is completely in control. The story is not about the donkeys. It's not even about Saul. Both of those play a different role than they, are, than they even think that they're playing in this story. God has a different plan for both of them in the narrative. And the question we often ask is, well, why does it have to stay hidden? Why is this hidden knowledge from Saul? Why can't God just right away tell him? And why doesn't he speak into our lives? with the same clarity. Because we believe that it's our right to know. We believe that, that we need to know these details of God's plan for our life in order that we might be faithful. And so it seems strange that God doesn't tell us outright. And so we're left trying to read the tea leaves. Okay, what is the message he really is trying to tell? How can I discern his plan for my life? We start looking at the clues around us. Okay, I I had this job interview, and I don't know if it's the right job for me, but you know what? The guy that interviewed me has the same last name as my grandfather. That is a sign. You know that girl I've been thinking about asking out? She has the same ringtone as me. Soulmates. I praise God that you guys didn't Follow the signs. There's a blockade keeping us from church this morning. God must be telling me I must, I must stay away. We, we laugh. I'm glad you can laugh. But so often we resort to this view of following God. And this is so reckless. Just because we have an opportunity to do something does not mean that God has opened a door for us. Think about what we're saying if we what we're saying about God if we were to operate like that. 
We'd be saying that it really is important that we have this information, but God wants to play games with us. He'd rather leave it in a riddle for us to solve. How wicked would that be if that was the way God would lead us? This is not a biblical view of how God uses his plan. Yes, he does have a plan. And yes, he is active. Don't retreat into that, into a secularism that says God's not involved. Now, the problem is, we think we need to know the plan in detail. But God doesn't need us to know the plan. It's not important for us. We need to know the big picture. Yes, the big picture is important. God has created us to worship him. He does all things for his own glory. And for his people, we know the promises he has for us in life. We can know the big, broad strokes of it, but he does not need us to know the details of the map. Many of us would love that. We'd love to know. As we we woke up one morning, we'd love to know exactly what God has in store for us as the right thing for us to do. Why do we want to know that? Oftentimes for many unhealthy reasons. I want to do it. I want to know that plan so that I can be absolved of responsibility. Hey, God, I followed Japan. It worked, if it doesn't work out well, it's your fault. It's not mine. We get absolved of the, of the blame We could be absolved from responsibility. But don't you see, we get absolved from any type of dignity. God's at work far more in crafting you to be a godly person than just to be a person who can follow instructions. He wants you to get his word deep inside of you, so much so that the wisdom that he creates in you can make godly decisions not to make the right step so that you can be called correct and you can get an A on the paper of your life, but one that thinks and shares God's heart. That is the dignifying work that he's started in you. God doesn't require you to know the details. In fact, knowing the details can lead you to all sorts of unfaithful habits and behaviors. Saul is clueless about this, but what if he knew? What if he knew what he was going to do that day? What if he knew that somebody else was going to find those donkeys? He wouldn't have headed out. He wouldn't have met Samuel. He wouldn't have been anointed king. There's many times that God leads us down a path that we are for sure certain that that is God's plan for us, only so that we can turn the corner at the end of the corridor. Makes me think of John Calvin's history, his own life. Uh, Some of you may know the the reformer of the 16th century, well known for being associated with Geneva as a a place where the Reformation expands and and explodes throughout the world. And it it was situated in such a way that was just almost perfect with some of the other wars that were going on in Europe at the time. A perfect place to to grow and develop uh, biblical study. But Calvin did not want to go to Geneva. He was, in fact, going to Strasbourg. 
except a civil war made him take a detour. So he gets stuck in this city of Geneva only overnight until somebody else convinces him, threatens him. (laughs) He should stay there. And in God's providence, he stays there. Has an amazing influence. I know many of you look at the decisions of your life and you see wasted time. You see a wrong course that has meant struggle for you, that has taken you away from what you even believe is God's plan. It could be done by illness. It could be done by, by frustrating decisions that were out of your hand. It could, be, it could be a number of reasons. It could be your own sin and selfishness. Don't believe the lie that God has not been completely in control, providentially in control. The real blessing of knowing this, that knowing God is sovereign, is not that we get to know the plan, but the real blessing of knowing that he's in control helps us to see that everything that happens is not done by accident. Accidents are not accidental when we understand this doctrine. But God is completely in control, even of the details. We don't have to settle for a world that works on some unpersonal, some impersonal force out there, like karma or luck or anything else dictating the circumstances of our lives. Well, that's the first thing that we have to see here. God did not abdicate the throne when they asked for a king. He did not recuse himself of activity in the nation. But the second thing is we have to ask the question, okay, he's in control, but will he be good? If I grant that he's active here, can I trust him? And this is where the question of Saul, is he good or is he bad, is immensely important. Does God give Israel a wicked king because they asked for it? You know, that is a translation of Saul's name. You asked for it. And is that, is that what God's doing? <laughs> okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. The idea that God is up there, sort of with a, a grin, a sinister grin in his mind. Okay, let me, let me give them their just desserts. I hear that question so many times. Yeah, okay, I understand he's sovereign, but is he good? It may be more to the point, okay, I even understand he's good in his character, but will he be good for me? Will it be personally good? Will he give me the blessings that I want? Do we have a, a view of God like that, that old story of the monkey's paw? Do you know, do you know that story? It's the turn of the last century, this sort of short story came up where Uh, This couple, Mr. and Mrs. White, are given a monkey's paw that has some magical uh, qualities to it that grants wishes, except with a twist. That every wish that it grants, it actually gives them something true, but with horrible consequences. So that they wish for $100,000, and then their only son dies, and they get compensation for the death of $100,000. We think that that's what God is like when we ask for something. Even if we ask for something sinfully, 
that he's up there saying, okay, uh, you know what, you asked for that. I'm now going to give it to you. Think of what we'd be saying if we believed God act like that. Will he give us the things that we ask for, but with a twist? Will he grant us our foolish requests? The truth is that if we read that into Saul at this point in chapter 1, we're really going to be misinterpreting the text. There is not enough evidence in the text to support that Saul is acting wickedly at this point. There's not enough to say here that he's acting either good or bad. The only piece of interpretive evidence that we have, the only thing that is going to help us do this, is when God offers this interjection in verses 15 to 16. He gives the commentary, and it helps us frame the whole entire narrative. God speaks to Samuel, the prophet, and he says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince. That is sort of like a king designate. A prince over my people, and he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. Wow. Put that in context with chapter 8. Israel has just given a, a sinful request, being tired of being the covenant people, rejecting their identity, saying, God, take a hike. And we don't want to minimize their sin. God doesn't just wash over it and be unconcerned by the fact that they are trying to go their own way. And yet, we don't want to minimize the mercy and the grace that he shows here in response. It's this rebellious uh, people that act like the prodigal son and the father responding like that father from that parable with grace. This doesn't trivialize Israel's sin. They repudiated the covenant identity that God was giving them. But look at the mercy here. This teaches us about the character of our God. He never puts the salvation of his people in their own hands. Because that's what they're asking for when they ask for a king. They're asking for salvation. Praise God he never puts that into our hands, however much we would demand it, however much we live like it. He is good to us, even when our hearts deeply desire to go off in a foolish path, something that's destructive for us. Verse 16 says, I have seen my people, and their cry has come up to me. Yes, they're asking for him to leave them alone, but he hears this deep longing for deliverance. He says, I will deliver them. I will rescue them. Praise God he doesn't answer us according to our foolishness. He cares for us more than that. Kids, I I, want to speak to you because so oftentimes you hear the no of your parents as hatred towards you. 
as wanting to frustrate you, as not giving you what you want. But when they repeatedly give you things, every time you ask, if they gave you something that hurt you, you think after a while that they just don't love you anymore because they kept giving you things that would turn badly for you. The covenant God responds to his people even in their selfish, faithless requests. And he gives them a blessing. This is how God responds to his people. And he doesn't respond this way to all people. Just to make that clear, this isn't something about the character of God that says he will turn every cloud into a rainbow. He's not going to turn every misery into something wonderful for all people. But he does promise this to his covenant people. He says, I will deliver you. But he didn't make that promise to the Philistines. It is for his people. Their plea, their cry for a king. When God answers this and gives them a king, it was the the answer of salvation. God gives them deliverance and rescue. And he gives it to his people that enter into a relationship with him formally. I mean, behind all of this is ecclesiology, an understanding of your place in a covenant corporate people. It's a fancy word for church. So God gives them a king that will deliver. It is a promise that, that he will act. The thirdly, Not only do we see that God is sovereign and that he's good, good to us, but we have to ask the question, does this really promise too much? Do we go a little too far with the idea that he's actually going to be good and that he's going to be be giving blessings? Because look at Saul. I mean, you don't have to turn too many pages forward to see he turns out to be a pretty miserable king. In fact, in chapter 15, he looks anything like a blessing from God. Even God himself says, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me. Did God actually give his people a snake when they asked for a fish? Did he let them down? Did he not see this coming? No, I I think what's essential for understanding the role of king And even for understanding Saul in this narrative of 1 Samuel is that this passage even now starts teaching us that we need to make a distinction between the man and the office. We need to make a distinction between the king and those serving in that role as king. That's the resounding message of this chapter in in chapter 9 is that Saul doesn't really matter. He hardly plays a role. What matters is that God has provided a king. Saul is pretty much as blank a slate as you can be in this part of the story. He has a lot going for him. Sure, he's tall, he's handsome, he's he's wealthy. But of course, we know in 1 Samuel that shouldn't mean much. Appearances aren't things to be caught up in. What that means for Saul is amazing. Because he brings nothing to the table, everything that gets thrown at him here is this lavish blessing. 
that he knows he didn't earn. It came out of nowhere. He didn't do anything. This is how he responds to Samuel. Samuel tells him that all of these wonderful things in Israel are for you. And Saul looks at him and says, wait a second. I'm a Benjaminite of the least of the tribes of Israel. And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why, Samuel, have you spoken to me this way? Saul is right. Samuel, you you got the wrong guy. You're giving all these great uh, words to somebody who's a nobody, essentially. But Samuel responds, not with, oh, hey, you're right, Saul. I got the wrong guy. You didn't deserve this. No, Samuel takes this, this undeserving person and he brings him into a banquet. And he sits him at the head of the table. And he brings this huge feast in front of him. And then he takes the choicest meat for God's choice of a person. Something we're told was set aside well before we even knew who this person was going to be. Why? Because it's set aside for the office. Samuel provides for the king. I can't stress this enough. The narrator, narrator over and over again puts Saul in the background. He is passive. This meal The whole event of everything that's being said about him shows nothing of the worth that he brings. What's this teaching us? What is this teaching us? Well, first, it's teaching us that the office of king is a special thing that God is doing here. It is his response to the wicked prayer to act like every other nation. And he will say, no, you don't get to be like every other nation, but I will give you a king, and I will use it my way. Saul gets the honor here. He gets the honor because he's keeping the seat warm. For this office of king will last for generations until one day God will send his son in the fullness of time to sit on that throne and to be the king that no other king sitting on that throne could be and to be a deliverer that that extends far past the little measly enemies like the Philistines. That is God's response. Because he continues to follow his covenant, no matter when we're faithless, he cannot remain faithless because he cannot deny himself, as 2 Timothy tells us. Saul is the beneficiary of this because it is the office held by Christ. Christ, the one who is God's answer to even our sin. To steal a line from Batman, Christopher Nolan's Batman, by the way. He is, Christ is the king that we deserve, isn't the king that we deserve, but the king that we need. It's clear we don't deserve him. God doesn't give it because we deserve him. We are hopeless in our sin. We are messed up. We continually ask for the wrong thing. And yet God gives us a hope again and again that's beyond our wildest dreams. In giving Jesus the king, he not only deals with the sin that is in us, but he gets down to the root of that rebellious heart 
and he reconciles us to himself. Christ will deliver his people, not because we deserve it, not because we're worthy, but because we need it. And Saul receives honor upon honor. It doesn't matter that he comes from the most despised tribe in Israel. It doesn't matter what he brings to the table. God lavishes riches upon him because he's sitting in Christ's seat. That's the only reason. And these riches are not just for those before Christ sitting in that seat, but now all who claim the name of Christ as theirs. This is what Christ offers you in the gospel. Not that he will abstractly forgive your sins from a distance. But he says, come and take my seat. I have taken your place on the cross. I have taken what you deserve in the punishment, in God meeting out all the judgment for our sins. You come and take my place. I have drunk the cup that you deserve, which is the cup of God's wrath. You take the sweet cup, the cup of blessings that are for me. This is how Paul puts it in that passage we saw in Ephesians. You who were dead in your trespasses, by nature you were like like all the other nations. But God, being rich in his mercy, did not let us stay there showed his kindness and grace toward us in Christ. Peter says the very same thing. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He goes on saying, you were once not a people, exactly what Israel asked to be. But now I have made you my people. We have received far more than we could ask for. So how should this affect us? In closing... What does this mean for us? We see God's providence playing out even in the context of our own sin. It needs to change our openness towards the future. It needs to point us again to say, no matter what we've done in our failings, in our setbacks, we come not to a person that acts like like a human response with vindictiveness and punishment but we come to a God who will respond in mercy and love to his covenant people. When you put your faith in him and you trust in him, when you unite yourself to his body, those are promises that you can hope for and know that will be answered true. Yes, we don't have the detailed plan, but God gives us the bird's eye view. We know how it will end. We know where this is going. And because we know that, we can rejoice at every step and thank God that he won't give us what our foolish hearts ask for again and again. He calls us to follow him, to walk not by sight, but by faith. Let's pray.